Welcome to Insight, a podcast devoted to subjects that are theological, historical, literary, even cinematic, but especially biblical. I'm your host and presenter, Gary Nation. Where today we are going to begin a look at the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John. This is a long chapter, and I'm really grateful for the monks and Bible scholars of the 10th century who installed chapter and verse divisions that they didn't yield to the temptation to divide up this chapter just because it's a long one. It all belongs together. It's all one piece. It contains two of the seven signs and one of the seven discourses that John builds the first 11 chapters of this book around. So, Yes, I'm glad they kept it together. But, because it is so long, I'm going to have to divide it into two sessions for the purpose of this study. Today we're going to talk about the two signs, the two miraculous events described in this chapter. And uh, next time, we'll focus on the discourse where Jesus more fully lays out the theological force of these two signs. Now, this story, the first story in particular, is a very familiar one. It usually goes under the name The Feeding of the 5,000, and it's one of the few things that's reported in all four Gospels. Now, each Gospel writer does have his own different spin on it, but John's particular viewpoint is different from all the others. Well, that's no surprise. We've been seeing that all along. But also, there, there are several small details that he shares that only seem important from the perspective of an eyewitness. We'll call our attention to those as they come up, but my main focus here is going to be on the story that John is telling here. So let's begin reading. Verse 1, after this Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Okay, after this, those words after this, that's a general time stamp. That's not referring to any specific event, it's just a general time. After the events of chapters 4 and 5, then this comes out. The uh, uh, Matthew and Mark and Luke seem to indicate that these this event took place uh, sometime after the death of John the Baptist. But John isn't concerned to put that kind of a time stamp on it. Um, he's got something else in mind to... Uh, to order this. And so we go. He, he calls it by two names. He calls it the Sea of Galilee and the Sea of Tiberias. Sea of Galilee is what the locals called it and had called it for a long, long time. Sea of Tiberias was its current political name and it was relatively new. It had been renamed in AD 20 by the Tetrarch Herod Antipas in honor of the Emperor Tiberius, who had succeeded Caesar Augustus. Had a little town built. Uh, on the uh, west bank of the of the Sea of Galilee, uh, named it Tiberius and renamed the sea the Sea of Tiberius. And so this was really this was the Roman name for it. And so it's one of the little indications in the Gospel of John that it was written later than the other Gospels, and well after the destruction of the Temple and the end of the Jewish War in the seventies A.D. Uh, the other gospel writers all refer to it as either the Sea of Galilee or just the Sea. Luke once calls it Lake Gennesaret. That's a Grecianized form of the Hebrew name, Kinneret. So, uh, but John remembered it as the Sea of Galilee, but he knew that many of his readers would only recognize the Roman name, Tiberius, and so he mentions that. 
So we go on reading. And the large crowd was following him, and because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Now, there's no discussion here of why Jesus crossed over out of Galilee, where his ministry was going great guns, by the way. Um, and he crossed over to a place that is in present-day nation of Syria. Uh, what Matthew hints at and what Mark is explicit about is that Jesus was actually trying to get himself and his disciples away from the crowd. Well, John ignores that because that's not relevant to the point he needs to make. Um, you'll see what John's about as the story begins to develop here. What's important to John, though, is not that Jesus was retreating from the multitudes, but that the multitudes were chasing after him. Why? Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Now, here's one of those times that, Jesus, that John lets on how much he is not telling us about Jesus' ministry. He's only told us about two healings so far, and only one of those happened in Galilee. But here it's... It's like the whole region is leaving behind their daily lives and livelihoods in order to hang desperately on Jesus' coattails because they finally found a healer who actually does heal the sick. Jesus is performing signs, but they see miracles. They want more. And that's a good thing, really. These people, thousands of them, were so anxious to find Jesus when they found out that he had left their territory that they dropped everything that they were doing. They, they just quit, and they, they took off. Many of them gathered their families. They set off for about a four-mile, what would be a four-mile boat trip across the lake, or more likely for pretty much, for almost vast majority of them, I'm sure, a six- to seven-mile walk around the lake. And, and it's, by the way, it's not an easy walk either. It's not an easy hike on gentle little hiking trails. You know, almost none of these people even packed a lunch. They certainly weren't prepared for a mass campout. They really were unprepared to be out there. They just took off after Jesus. And at this point, also, I think that all or at least the vast majority of these people would consider themselves followers of Jesus. Disciples, even. They did go out of their way to follow him, after all. And I think they would consider themselves believers in Jesus because they certainly believed that he had healing power. You know, John Calvin, in his commentary on this, he commends these people for their zeal and, uh, and excuses them for their carelessness. He says, quote, Here we see how eager was the desire of the people to hear Christ, since all of them, forgetting themselves, take no concern about spending the night in the desert place. Very rarely does it happen that Christ finds us free and disengaged from the entanglements of the world. So far as every one of us from being ready to follow him to a desert mountain that scarcely one in ten can endure to receive him when he presents himself at home in the midst of comforts. But we ought likewise to observe that Christ, of his own accord, takes care of those who neglect themselves in order to follow him. Good word, encouragement, and a little bit of rebuke there from John Calvin. All right, continuing on. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. And there he sat down. That's what teachers did when they were getting ready to teach. They didn't stand before the people. They sat down. Because uh, to be seated was a sign of authority. Okay, verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. 
That's a significant detail, but not for the reason you may think. Remember, the events of chapter 5 occurred during a feast, but John didn't bother to name the feast because it wasn't pertinent to the message. But here, it is. Now, at this point, you're going to need to bring to mind everything, everything that's part of the Passover. Passover is not a simple commemoration like Thanksgiving. It's inclusive of the entire exodus, the entire movement of the deliverance of the people of God out of their bondage in Egypt. It includes the plagues in Egypt. It includes the... Uh, the uh, the Passover meal itself. It includes the, the death of the firstborn in Egypt. It includes being sent out from, the, from Egypt by Pharaoh. It includes the crossing of the Red Sea. It includes going out into the wilderness, the manna in the wilderness, all the way to Sinai. All of these things are in mind in this. So this feast is at hand, and it's important here, but not for the reason that you may think. John's not telling us this so that we can understand what season of the year it is, which is early springtime. He's not telling us so that we can count the years of Jesus' ministry before his death in Jerusalem by counting the number of Passovers that he mentions. He's telling us this because it has a theological purpose in what he's getting ready to show us. And have you noticed he's been doing this regularly since chapter 1? where John the Baptist identified Jesus as the Lamb of God. Now, let's see where it takes us this time. So we're going to move on. Verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Now I want to pause here just a moment to point out there's something in here that isn't in the other Gospels, and that is Jesus singling out Philip to talk about the food issue. Remember Philip? We met him in chapter 1. He's the guy who went and found Nathanael and brought him to Jesus. Well, that's just one of John's little eyewitness details, but I also want you to call your attention to, uh, to something that is in the other Gospels that isn't here. I wonder if you notice it. The other Gospels all say that when the multitude showed up, Jesus spent time teaching and preaching and healing. And that late in the afternoon, his disciples pointed out there wasn't any food and asked Jesus to send them home before hunger became a problem. There's none of that here. Now, what could be John's reason for skipping that detail? Well, let's go on, see if we can figure it out. Philip answered him, 200 denarii wouldn't buy enough bread for each of these to get a little. 200 denarii, he mentions that. Why do you think he said 200 denarii? Was, was it because that's how much they had? No, actually, I don't think so. 200 denarii is a pretty good amount of change, considering that a denarii, a denarius, uh, was kind of the standard day's wage for a laborer. It kind of reminds me of at the er, in the early 20th century, a dollar a day was the stand, was a standard wage for a day laborer. Well, in those days, uh, it was uh, a denarius. That was kind of the minimum wage sort of thing. And so, 200 denarii, uh, two, 200 denarii would be uh, better part of a year's wages. And I don't think they ever carried that much at any one time. Uh, if 
if they ever did, it would have been an, it would have been an unusual situation for them. Um, so uh, I think Philip mentioned or, or two hundred denarii because that's an amount that was beyond anything that they would ever carry, and yet, even if they had that much, it wouldn't have been enough to feed all of the people. That is the point. So it goes on, and one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, well, there's a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish. What are they for so many? Ah, there's another eyewitness detail. It was Andrew who brought forth the boy with the five loaves and the two fish. Now, Andrew was not one of the front row guys in Jesus' group. But every time you see him pointed out, it's because he's bringing somebody to Jesus. That's pretty good, starting with his brother, Simon Peter. Well, let's talk just a minute about these five loaves and two fish. Here's another eyewitness detail and makes a point. It's only John that tells us. These were five barley loaves. This wasn't wheat bread. It was barley bread. Barley bread was the bread of the poor. It's not as tasty as wheat bread. It's not as nutritious, but it's easier to grow and cheaper to come by. And it was in the possession of a child, a little boy. Five loaves doesn't sound like much, but it's, it's way too much food for one little boy. Probably he had been given, him, given them by his mother to share or possibly, maybe even probably, to sell. Bring home a few pennies may help support the family that way. As for the two fish, they were small little things, salted fish uh, like sardines, maybe even anchovies, not meant to be a course in themselves, but they were served along with the bread as a condiment. So John not only agrees with the other gospel writers about the humble origin and paltry nature of the food supply, he emphasizes it. Andrew says, what are they for so many? Somebody else might have said this sarcastically. <laughs> Five loaves, two fish, what are they for so many, huh? And just put it that way. I don't think that's the way Andrew said it. I think he said it with a tone of sad recognition. Lord, we tried, but seriously, this is this is the best we can do. This is this is all there is in the entire camp. There is no food. I mean this this is hopeless. It looks like we're gonna to have to give up on the idea of feeding these folks ourselves. But then Jesus surprises him and the rest of the twelve. Continuing, Jesus said, have the people sit down. They were expecting Jesus to say, all right, go ahead and send the people away. But he says, no, <laughs> have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 number. Now, this is one of the things, another one of the things that the Gospels are all in agreement about, that the crowd numbered 5,000 men. And some other Gospel writers include the detail along with women and children and their families. So you've got this, a huge number of people. Continuing, verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. All right. What do you think happened here? 
There's some people who try to make it out that Jesus brought forward the little boy with his little lunch and made an example, a public example of sharing that so shamed the people who had actually brought plenty of food that they decided to pull it out and go ahead and share it with other people. And amazingly enough, there was plenty of food for everybody and there was food left over. And then, then there are some people who say, well, Jesus managed to divide the food into such minuscule portions so that everybody got a bite and somehow it tidied them over. So I don't know where the baskets of leftovers came from in that case. I just don't know. People are always trying to explain away the miracles of the Bible. But they're forgetting a few things. They're forgetting about uh, the larger witness of the scriptures. In the Old Testament book of Kings, there's a story about how the prophet Elijah provided for a poor widow, her son and himself, and managed to feed them through an entire re, uh, period of famine with a single cruise of oil and a jar of flour that never went empty throughout all the months of the famine. Then there was Elijah, uh, or Elijah's successor, Elisha, who kept a poor widow and her sons out of debt slavery through a jar of oil that kept pouring and pouring and pouring until every vessel in the house was full, and then the oil was sold and brought in money to pay off debts and live on for months afterward. Then there was another time, again with the prophet Elisha, when he fed a hundred men who had come, and they, they needed something to eat, and he had 20 barley loaves and a bag of freshly harvested grain. And with that amount of food, he fed 100 men. Okay, now, 20 barley loaves to 100 men, that's maybe not be the, the same ratio as five loaves to 5,000 men, but it's the same kind of miraculous provision made by prophets in the Old Testament. And so we see Jesus doing things like what the other prophets had done, but on a grander scale. But wait a minute, what also about Moses, who superintended the feeding of the entire 12 tribes of Israel in the desert of Sinai with what? Manna, a mysterious food that appeared every morning for six days a week for the entire four decades that the new nation of Israel spent in those wilderness wanderings. Now, if you miss the significance of that, please don't doubt that the people who were there on the mountain with Jesus made the connection because that is what explains everything that follows afterward. In fact, the only thing that can explain what came afterward is that the blessing upon the meal and the hand of Jesus applied to the morsels of food brought supernatural power to bear that turned food into more food, that turned a small amount of food into an ample amount of food. So we can really see what's going on, if we can see what's going on in this passage. It will help us to learn to trust God to provide for us, and even to provide miraculously when it's called for, without falling into the errors of the prosperity gospel that preaches that God wants to make you rich and comfortable. Now, God's not against earthly blessings and prosperity and health. All those things are good things. God gives good things to his children. But he doesn't want us to live for them. Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, things that have to do with life and the body, should be added to you. But the point is, 
to seek first, that is, not first on a long list of things that you want, but first above all other things as the ordering priority in your life. Seek first the kingdom of God. But it doesn't work if you try to use the kingdom of God to get the things. It's all about the kingdom. It's not about the things. Paul said in Romans 14, 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And let me point out to you also, there was nothing fancy about this meal out in the desert. It was a poor man's meal, but it was nourishing, it was filling, and no one had to go home weak and hungry. The people were not only fed, they were filled, they were satisfied, and there was ample left over. Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. You know, the New International Version translates that last word, wasted, that nothing may be wasted. Well, that's not wrong, but I think it's a little too specific, a translation. It's true and it's accurate, but I think Jesus is saying more than we shouldn't be wasteful. It's a much more powerful word that's being used there. It's the same word that's used in other places in this gospel. It's the same word in John 3.16 that's translated perish. Here, the way Jesus speaks these words turns leftovers from the feeding of the people into a parable. He does not want any of it and any of them to perish. He does not want any of it, any of them to be lost. Verse 13. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments. Okay, just hold on to that number 12. We're going to get to it probably next time. But what do you suppose they did with these 12 baskets of leftovers? Just, you know, none of the Gospels actually say. But since it's unlikely that the disciples were going to keep it all, we assume that they let people come by to pick it up on their own to take home. Uh, at the very beginning of this story, John connected it to the Passover. Are you beginning to see a connection? Do you see how bread is connected to the Passover? Not just to the plain, unleavened bread of the Passover, but also to the manna in the wilderness. There's a definite Passover connection in all of this that we often skip over because we're so focused on the loaves and the fishes and the little boy and the multitude, and we miss the larger point that John is making with the theme of the Passover. All right, now, look at verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Hmm. When the people saw what? The sign. That word is important. If your, Bi if your Bible translates it miracle, well, you had, I'm not going to say scratch it out, but you need to at least write in the margin the word sign. Now, we've talked before about the importance of the word sign for John. For him, the miraculous works of Jesus were more than just wonders of power. They were signs. They were pointers. Every one of them was a witness, a testimony, not only to the power of God in Jesus, but into the nature and character of God and his kingdom. When people saw the sign that he had done, they saw what he did when he gave thanks and began passing food to his disciples to distribute to the people. They may not have understood the mecha mechanism of all of this. They may not have they may not have seen it up close, but they knew that they, they were out there in a place where there was no food. 
There were no, was no food. There were no vendors. And all of a sudden, everybody had plenty to eat. They were filled. There was stuff left over. And nobody had brought in wagons of food for these people to eat. Everything had come from Jesus. And so they saw a sign. And seeing a sign, they thought they knew something significant had happened here. They correctly understood that what had happened was a sign of something big. So they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Hmm, sounds almost exactly like what the Samaritan woman said, doesn't it? The reference is to Moses' words in Deuteronomy 18.15. He said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Ha! <laughs> so Moses gave them manna in the wilderness... And now Jesus has given us barley bread in the wilderness, and he brings to us words directly from God. He's the prophet who is to come. Actually, so far, so good. Like so many people today, they are half right about Jesus. Some of them are more than half right. Is Jesus the prophet who is to come? Yes. Is he the coming king, the son of David? Yes. But then all that rising faith in Jesus just, just kind of goes off the rails. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. All right. now, once again, John is skipping what the other Gospels are telling us in order to tell us something that they don't tell us. Jesus the one who knows and understands what is in people's hearts, knew that there was a movement mounting to come and forcibly make him king. Now ponder the paradox of that. They are going to force him to be their king and ruler. Look at the logical leaps they're making here. They've come to him because of the signs he's performing. And after the sign of the bread, they are convinced he's the prophet to stand in Moses' stead. From there, they decide he must be the king. When somebody starts the chant, Hail Jesus, you're our king. And then some of those decide that the time is right for the king to take his rightful throne. Why wait any longer, right? What if he doesn't want to? It doesn't matter. We're going to make him king whether he likes it or not. We need a leader now. It never occurs to them that what they're planning is self-contradictory and completely unrighteous. If Jesus is the divinely anointed king... His ascension to the throne must be orchestrated by God, not by a self-appointed gang out in the desert. If Jesus is Lord, he's in charge, not the Citizens' Committee. If God has elected him, he doesn't need your vote. So they're going to seize him and make him their king, whether he likes it or not. The thing is, I really don't think it got that far. And that's why the other Gospels don't mention it. Jesus nipped it in the bud. How? He made himself scarce. We've seen, we see in this gospel, he, he's good at that. There, we, we've seen it before and we're going to see it again. He, there are going to be those who come to arrest him and they can't find him because he's just not, he's, he knows how to, how to do that. He withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. By the way, there's another one of John's favorite words, manas, alone. He uses it nine times in this gospel. So, when the posse that might have dragged him to the front of the people to crown him started looking for him, he wasn't there, couldn't be found. 
And so, as quickly as it had arisen, the movement to start the new kingdom right there on the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee just fizzled out. Jesus, in his mercy, withdrew his presence from those who wanted to use his kingdom in order to gain leverage in this world. That's not the way he works. It wasn't then. It isn't now. You don't use Jesus. You plead for him to use you. When evening came, moving on, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. They were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. And then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. All right, once again, John sets aside every other detail that other gospel writers consider important in order to zero in on the theological point he wants to make. Now, are you still keeping the Exodus story in mind? It's all related to the Passover. After the first Passover, Pharaoh released the Israelites, and what happened after that? Pharaoh's army pressed them, hemmed the men against the sea. And then Moses stretched out his rod, and Jehovah God showed his mastery over the sea. He parted the waters with a great wind, and the people crossed over on dry land. Now let's look again at what's happening here in these verses. After witnessing and benefiting from the sign of the bread, the people have acclaimed Jesus to be a prophet, and they're pressing him. They want to force him to become their king. He withdraws from them, frustrating their plan. But he comes down privately to his disciples, who are struggling on the water against a furious headwind. And he doesn't need for the wind to make a dry path through the sea for him. For him, the wind-tossed water is as firm as a highway. He is the master of all these elements. Now, according to Jesus in John chapter 5, he doesn't do anything except what he sees and hears from God his Father. And so, in that authority, he walks to them upon the water. He demonstrates his mastery over the water and over the wind and the waves better than Moses did. Moses had to make a place for dry ground. Jesus didn't need to do that. He just walked on the water as though it were dry ground. What is their response? Fear. <laughs> they, they were terrified. Well, wouldn't you be? But they had just witnessed Jesus' power over the elements with the supernatural multiplication of the loaves. Why should they be freaked out when they see Jesus perform another demonstration of his power over the elements? Matthew and Mark tell us they thought it was an apparition, a ghost. But why would they think that? Wouldn't that mean he was dead? That doesn't make much sense. But when unbelief seizes your mind and heart, you start grasping for explanations, and your mind starts working to fill in the gaps with answers that don't make sense. Well, let me ask you. Have you ever seen God's power at work in your life? Maybe an answer to a prayer for deliverance or a provision. And you've seen God work and answer that. And then the next time you're in trouble, you doubt. <laughs> Don't feel too bad. If you study the scriptures, you'll see that that's the story of the people of God from the very beginning until this day. 
You know, we just don't make those associations. We easily forget his answers to prayer. We don't connect one dot with another about the work of God in our lives. And we doubt him because we, we don't consider ourselves worthy of his power to work on our behalf. We can't conceive of God's greatness and power in the first place, but if, then if we can conceive it, we have a hard time believing that he would stoop to applying that great power on our behalf. That's why the Apostle Paul reminds the good Christians in Ephesus that God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work in us, Ephesians 3.20. So how does Jesus respond to their fear? He doesn't rebuke it. He answers it. It is I. Do not be afraid. Now, do you notice he doesn't speak his name? Or does he? It is I. That's how it translates into idiomatic English. But the Greek words are ego I me. They are emphatic. I am. It is a direct translation of God's answer to Moses on the mountain through the fire of a burning bush when Moses asked, Whom shall I say sent me? And God said, I am that I am. Tell them I am sent you. Too much? Hmm. Well, hang on. We haven't even gotten to the main part of this chapter. We've read the signs, but we've not yet gotten to Jesus' own explanation of what those signs tell us about him and his relation to God and his relation to us. So we're just going to let that thought rest and use it as the connecting point to what follows when we come to it next time. So until then, may the Lord, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work in us. Bless you. Amen. Of the seven signs that John records, all but two of them create a public controversy. Next time we'll examine the one set up by the feeding of the 5,000. Join me as we get into the meat of John chapter 6. This is Insight with Gary Nation. Thanks for listening.